When I was a kid, I remember being at my grandmother's house in central Virginia. Um, she lived on a farm, that's uh, where my mom grew up, and I remember being at her house in June of 1994, and I think we were watching the NBA Finals, and they cut into the NBA Finals, and the TV was on, and we were suddenly watching a whole bunch of police cars slowly following a white Ford Bronco <laughs> around the highways of Los Angeles. Of course, we came to find out, as those of you laughing know, those of you that are younger have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay. You can look it up on Wikipedia later. But inside that Ford Bronco was O.J. Simpson, who was a former football star and a celebrity, became an actor, and he was, at this point, wanted for, for murder, murder of his ex-wife and her friend. Um, eventually, he was caught, he was arrested, and he was put on trial for those murders. Now, saying that it was a long trial may be the understatement of the century. It was a shockingly long trial. Uh, it lasted 11 months, and everybody was very, very interested in it. The nightly news would have an update every single day on the O.J. Simpson trial. It was drew national, international attention. Um, it's hard to even put something in perspective now that drew that much attention. But I remember also at my Christian school, I would have been about 13, 14 years old, uh, maybe 8th or ninth grade, and I remember during school, in the middle of the school day, we actually pulled a TV into our classroom and turned it on with the antenna so that we could watch the verdict read. And it's estimated that over 100 million people tuned in to watch the verdict read on live television. Of course, you know he was found not guilty in that particular trial, and lots has transpired since then, which I will not get into. Now, I don't think there's ever, or since then, I don't think there's been a trial that has reached that level of interest, but part of the reason it got to that level, and then I think just in general in our society, we are fascinated by courtroom scenes and by trials. Um, there's whole TV channels that are given over to explaining courtroom trials and, and telling stories about um, lawyers and scenes uh, in the courtroom with judges and what happens and uncovering evidence and all of that. And I think at least there's a lot of reasons for our interest in that, but at least one of the reasons for that is because when something gets to a trial, what you're hoping for is access to the truth. I mean, that's why you go on trial. You're, you're hoping to get some sort of information that comes out and is clear and is irrefutable and uh, details are, are told and are shared that give access to the truth so that the truth about that circumstance can be known. And in a trial, the stakes are high, right? I mean, in his situation, it was in jail for the rest of his life, possibly the death penalty versus being let go and free. And many of them are, are that way. And so because the stakes are so high, there are direct questions that are asked that are attempting to get at the heart of things and to uncover the truth. Now, in our study of the Gospel of John, let's transition over there for a second here. In chapter 18, we saw Jesus get arrested, and he's in the garden 
with a group of his disciples. He gets arrested by a combination of Roman soldiers and Jewish soldiers coming from the temple. Judas, of course, the betrayer, is leading them out to find Jesus. And as he's arrested, he's taken to the Jewish authorities, to the house of the high priest, the high priest's family, and he's initially questioned there by the Jewish authorities, by Annas and Caiaphas. As I told you last week, the high priest gets nowhere in his questioning of Jesus, and today we're going to see Jesus moved from the Jewish authorities to the group with the real power at that time, the Romans. And now he's going to enter into an actual formal trial that is going to, we know, result in his death at the hand of the Romans. Begins here and will carry us all the way through into chapter 19 and into the crucifixion of Christ. Now, as you watch this trial unfold, as you, as you see the details happen both now and next week, but specifically here, we're going to get some insight into who Jesus is. Because like I told you, during a trial, hard questions are asked, the truth tends to come out. And so as we look at this trial, the truth that we already know from our study of the book of John is going to come out once again. And in this, we're going to see three sketches, three pictures that define who Jesus is for us. And they help us to see our salvation in a, in a fresh light because of what happens to him in his trial. So here's what we're going to look at this week. Let me give it to you specifically. Three sketches of Jesus in his trial that show us, that put on display our salvation. We're getting insight into both who he is and then the results of who he is for us in our salvation. And that's what my goal is this morning. I want to remind you of these realities of what Jesus has come to accomplish for you. And we see them in his trial before Pilate. And the first one of these you can see on the screen there. He is the Passover lamb who is sacrificed for you. I mean, the whole title of the sermon is he's on trial for you. And that sort of pervades everything about this text is all of this is happening for you and for me. So he's the Passover lamb who is sacrificed for you in verses 28 to 32. Look at the first part of verse 28. Then... So after he's at Caiaphas' house, after the questioning there, after the whole incident with Peter, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. So Caiaphas is the Jewish high priest, and now they move Jesus to the governor's headquarters. And I've already told you that this is a Roman situation, but during this time, we'll find out specifically that the governor or the Roman prefect in charge of and governing the area of Judea was a man named Pilate. Now, normally, Pilate would not have been stationed and had his headquarters in Jerusalem. But because it's the week of Passover, because there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Jewish pilgrims in the city of Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, because the people are so... Uh, excited in their religious celebrations about their nation and about their scriptures, Pilate is now stationed in Jerusalem, very close by, so that he can keep an eye on things and so that if he needs to, he can respond quickly and efficiently to any sort of uprising or any sort of rebellion that might happen. Well, Pilate 
ruled in Judea as governor from A.D. 26 all the way to A.D. 37. And interestingly enough, he's the only person other than Mary who is mentioned in the Apostles' Creed. One of the original, most basic, fundamental statements of what Christians believe, this guy ends up mentioned in that statement. Why? Why, do the, why does the Apostles' Creed draw attention to Pilate? Well, it's interesting when you start to look at Pilate, uh, there's actually quite a bit written about him from ancient sources and ancient sources other than the Bible. A number of non-Christian outside sources mention him and even talk about him being the one who crucified Jesus of Nazareth. So obviously that's a, a significant thing that these outside sources mention Pilate and mention that he crucified Jesus of Nazareth. Now it's not that you and I need those outside sources to verify the truthfulness of Scripture, but the mention of Pilate in the Apostles' Creed, in those sources, obviously the mention of him in Scripture and the truthfulness of who he is in this time period, the historical accuracy of it, reminds us that we, we have a faith that is not filled with myths. It's not made up. It's not just a, a faith that has all of these nice stories that have spiritual lessons to them and teach us how to live. This is a faith that is rooted in history. These things really happened as the Gospels attest that they happened. They're historically verifiable events that took place. And you have to do something with them. You have to respond in some way to the reality that Pilate crucified this man and that the Christian movement began out of this. Something happened after his crucifixion that led a whole bunch of people to testify that he was raised from the dead and to believe him and to be willing to go to death for him. And that's something, obviously, is his resurrection from the dead, but all of it is historically verifiable fact here. These things happen in real time and in a real place. Now, I want you to notice what happens as the Jewish authorities bring Jesus to Pilate in the rest of verse 28. It was early morning they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Why? So that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now, clearly, as we've talked about, the Passover is taking place that evening. And to enter the home of a Gentile here would have possibly made the Jewish leaders ceremonially unclean and could have made them unclean and unable to take the Passover for up to seven days. Now, just by way of explanation here, it's not, it's not that paying attention to cleanness and uncleanness is inherently wrong for them, okay? This is not a sin for them to be concerned about being ceremonially unclean and unable to take the Passover. It wasn't a sin for them to be unclean. They just had to follow the right method to become clean again and to be able to take the Passover. But the problem here in what they're doing is the irony of the situation, right? They are worried about ceremonial uncleanness regarding the Passover, and they're missing the entire point of the Passover. They're missing the fact that they have the one in the true Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb, who the whole thing points toward, is here with them, and they're about to put him to death. 
They're about to falsely accuse him of doing wrong and send him to Roman crucifixion. And just a reminder here of the Passover. In the book of Exodus, God promised to free the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. You know this story. If you're, you've been here with us for a couple years, we went through the book of Exodus. And this is the most significant event in the history of Israel in the Old Testament. This is the paradigm of God's salvation. This is the type of thing that he does for his people. On the night when they were going to be freed from Egypt, he instituted the Passover. And what happened is that he would send his angel of death and judgment through the land of Egypt. And the only way for you to be protected from that judgment, to cover yourself, to keep away from that judgment, was to have a lamb die for you in your place to receive that judgment for you. And the lamb's blood would have to be placed on the doorpost as a sign that atonement had been made, that your sins were covered. And then you were protected from judgment. And then the result of being protected for judgment for the Israelites is that they were led to freedom and to new life as God's people. It wasn't just escaping judgment. It was the fact that Passover ultimately led to their freedom and to new life as God's people. In 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, Paul is telling the Corinthians to live holy lives, and they're to live holy lives, lives that demonstrate they are free from sin because they have a new status as God's children. They have been freed from slavery to sin because Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for them. The Old Testament points forward to this. Jesus is the true and the final Passover lamb who does much more than free his people from slavery in Egypt. And now Paul says you can't enter back into slavery because Christ's death has made you free from sin. All of that the Jews here clearly miss. They don't see it. They don't understand it. And they end up bringing about the death of the true Passover lamb. Now, of course, they can't do it on their own. And Pilate, the governor, is heavily involved in this. Look at verse 29. So because they couldn't come inside... Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Now, this is a request for formal charges. I mean, Pilate is saying, okay, give me the charge. Tell me exactly what it is that you are accusing him of. The Jews have delivered Jesus over to the Romans. They brought him to Pilate. And now Pilate is saying, tell me why. Look how they answer in verse 30. They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Now, this is quite the statement to make, a little bit circular here in every single way, right? Now, I think maybe what the Jews thought is because Pilate had sent troops to help with the arrest of Jesus, right? I mean, there were Roman troops, and surely Pilate knew about a group of 200 to 600 Roman troops going out in the middle of the night to arrest this very popular rabbi. No doubt Pilate was read in on that, okay? So he knew about this. So maybe the Jews thought that because he had agreed to go and arrest him, that he would just sort of go along with their 
their desire to see him condemned. So they basically just say, look, he's a bad guy. We think he is, so you should think he is too. It's a shocking thing to say, and it reveals the major problems in their case against Jesus, right? They don't have one, ultimately. And that's the problem here. And Pilate isn't taking the bait at all. And so he answers back to them in verse 31. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Pilate's like, well, look, you try him for his crimes. If you think he's a criminal and you can't even articulate to me what it is that he's done wrong that would lead me to use my authority to crucify him on a Roman cross, then you take it and you handle it. There's not a great history of relationship, of, of warm and kind relationship between Pilate and the Jews, and you sort of see that here. And the Jews respond, and this is a key point at the end of verse 31. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Now, the Romans had not given them this authority. They didn't have the ability to just take Jesus out and stone him to death under Roman rule. And that's the reason why Jesus ultimately ends up on a Roman cross instead of being stoned to death by the Sanhedrin. This is why he suffers the shame and humiliation that he does. And that's a key part of the crucifixion is the shame and the humiliation and the dehumanization that Jesus suffers on the cross. He is treated like an animal, and not like a human being. And the Jewish leadership need the Romans to put Jesus to death because they're not allowed to do it themselves. Now Jesus, it says in verse 32, had already talked about this. This was to fill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He understood this. He knew what was coming for him at the hands of the Romans but this prediction that Jesus makes ultimately goes much further back in Scripture to something that is said in Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man, a man put on a tree, is cursed by God. So this is the real background here, and this is what Jesus knew he was going to suffer. That he was going to suffer on a tree and be hanged on a tree and ultimately receive the judgment, the wrath, and the curse of God. And as he is receiving that, he did that as the Passover lamb. He shed his blood took your place and suffered at the hands of the Romans and from the accusations of the Jews for you and for me. He took God's curse for our sin so that we wouldn't have to. So after this confrontation with the Jews, Pilate now goes inside to do a little investigation on his own. And this is our second sketch that we get to here in his conversation with Jesus inside his headquarters. The second sketch is the king who has come to rule and reign. Look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Now, of course, we've been talking about this in our class on Christology and Bible Institute, but of course, the Jews at this time, the nation of Israel, was full of messianic expectations. I mean, the people really did expect not God to come as a king, but they did expect that God would send a Davidic king, a king in the line of David, in order to conquer, to free the people from oppression, and and to bring them back to who they were supposed to be. That was their hope, and it was a very real and tangible hope for them. There's even a scene in John 6, you may not remember this, and you don't need to turn back there, but there's a scene in John 6 where Jesus provides bread, he feeds 5,000 people, and the people are so excited about this that they try to take him by force and make him king. Now, there's every indication that Pilate would have probably heard rumors about this. I mean, Jesus was a pretty popular guy. No matter where he went, crowds gathered around him. So he may have heard rumors about what had been taking place, or the Jews may have indicated to Pilate, even in the conversation here as they deliver him over, that he claimed to be king. We don't know exactly And Jesus didn't know exactly here. And so he asks for clarification. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Jesus wants to know what he's dealing with. Is this a charge that the Jews have made here? Because if it is, then I need to answer it in a particular way. Or is this something that you're curious about and that you're asking about? And if it's that, then I need to answer in a different way. Look at verse 35, Pilate answers. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Probably a bit of scorn in his question there. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? In other words, to Pilate, this seems like an intramural squabble. It's a problem among Jews that if he doesn't have to, he doesn't really want to deal with. And so, in response to that, Jesus now clarifies the true nature of his kingship. And he does this without giving Pilate grounds to put him to death, right? So he's, he's navigating here and speaking with some amount of wisdom to avoid giving Pilate direct grounds to put him to death and also answering truly. And so look what we get in verse 36. Very helpful. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Then I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Now it's clear from all of the Gospels. If you read the Gospels at all, you understand that when Jesus comes on the scene, he proclaims the arrival of the kingdom of God. This is a central tenet of his ministry, of his preaching. He talks about the kingdom. But what exactly is he talking about? What is God's kingdom that is arriving in him and is coming? Well, he makes it clear here that it's not exactly like an earthly kingdom. And he wants Pilate to understand this. Look, I'm not looking to push the Romans out and establish a new dynasty here today in Israel. That's not what I'm going for, regardless of what other people may think. Jesus is saying, I'm not another worldly and petty ruler. I'm not like you, Pilate. I'm not like others. And if he would have been that sort of ruler, then he would have encouraged Peter's actions in the garden, right? 
Peter goes after the guy with the sword or the dagger and Jesus tells him to put it away. Why? Because his kingdom comes about through something different. His kingdom, he tells Peter, comes about not through violence. It comes about through his sacrifice on the cross and his drinking of the cup of God's wrath for sin. That's how his kingdom comes about. So here's what's amazing about Christ's kingdom. He defeats the powers of sin. He wins victory over sin and over Satan and the powers of darkness. He conquers as a king bringing in his kingdom. But the way in which he does that is by going to the cross and offering himself as a sacrifice to win that victory. He offers himself as a sacrifice for you and for me. And by that substitutionary atonement, he wins victory over sin and over death. His kingdom comes about not like the world's kingdoms, but in a different way. A couple of passages here in Colossians that that bring together his victory and his atonement for sin. He delivered us from the domain of darkness, right? He entered the domain of darkness and conquered and won a great victory and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is how it happens. Your sins are forgiven through his substitutionary death and it's by that forgiveness that then he conquers darkness and brings you into his kingdom. Further in that passage, Colossians chapter two, and you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So your sin has been nailed to the cross. It has been set aside. And it's through that action that look what happens. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The death of Christ wins the victory over sin through his penal substitutionary atonement. That is how we need to understand the death of Christ. It's both of those coming together in his work. And he does come to rule and reign. Listen, he's a king. He is the sovereign, powerful king. But he comes to rule and reign in a different way and over a different sort of kingdom. His kingdom right now is spreading, not through political victories or military might. His kingdom began with his coming, is spreading now throughout the world, and will one day come in its full and final form when we enter into the new earth, the new heavens with him for eternity. How does his kingdom spread now? It spreads now through the proclamation of the good news of the king. It spreads through us telling people what he has done in his substitutionary death for them, that he has conquered sin and darkness and death through his death. And it comes as people hear that message and then they submit their hearts to the king who died for them. And then they are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. That's what Jesus is affirming in verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. 
And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. And when he says this here, what he's actually saying is, you are right in saying that I am a king. Jesus is affirming what Pilate has said. He's defined it in verse 36. And now he's saying, when you understand what I've said in verse 36, you're correct. I am a king. Continue in 37. For this purpose, to be the king, I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. His kingdom is one of truth about God, about himself, and about you and I in our sin. And to enter his kingdom, he says right here at the end of this verse, is to accept his teaching, his perspective, and to recognize your need for his atoning death and to find new life in him through repentance and faith. You repent of your sins and turn to him in faith. Acknowledge his death for you, his victory over sin, and you enter his kingdom by faith. Now, Pilate is clearly in no position to grasp all of this, right? Verse 38, the first part. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, I could sort of picture him spinning around as he says this and sort of throwing it back at Jesus as he heads to go back outside to meet with the Jews again. And that brings us to our third sketch in this passage. He's not only the Passover lamb who sacrificed for you and the king who's come to rule and reign with a different sort of kingdom that's entered in a different sort of way, but he's also the innocent one who suffers instead on behalf of, in the place of, the guilty. Look at the rest of verse 38. After he'd said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now, this is an important statement. This is a drum that Pilate is going to beat over and over again throughout his interactions with Jesus, throughout the narrative here. Pilate is saying, look, this is not a murderer. This is not a thief. This is not even a sinner. We understand that. He's done nothing wrong. There's no guilt in this guy. The Jews so far in John haven't even come up with an accusation and presented it clearly. And after Pilate questions Jesus, he can't find any fault with him. No guilt. And so after all of that, the logical question or the logical action would be to release him, right? I mean, that makes sense. There's no guilt in him. Let him go. Well, in a rather strange outcome here, Pilate decides to go a different route to try to get out of this whole thing. Look at verse 39. But you, the Jews, have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They immediately turn to someone else. Pilate doesn't even mention him here in John. They turn to a different guy. Look at the rest, or look at the beginning of verse 40. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. We'll get to that in a second. Think about what's happened here. Pilate has been questioning Jesus to see if he's some sort of a king, right? That's how he begins his line of questioning. He's asking Jesus this because he wants to find out if he is claiming to be some sort of political authority who might threaten Rome, 
who might threaten their rule in the land, who might instigate a rebellion against Rome. And so Pilate wants to find that out, which makes sense. So keep that in mind, and then notice the editorial comment that John makes at the end of this. The end of verse 40 here. Now, Barabbas was a robber, and you probably have a footnote in your Bible. If you have an ESV, you definitely do, that says that this could be translated insurrectionist. Now, that is definitely a political enemy of Rome. A guy who has been described as an insurrectionist is someone who is raising a rebellion against the state, against Rome. He is guilty, this guy, is guilty of the exact thing that Pilate is questioning Jesus about. The same thing. He's guilty of being a political rebel against Rome, and Pilate is questioning Jesus to find out if he's a political rebel against Rome. Now, the chief priests, the Jewish leaders, would have had normally nothing to do with a guy like this, right? Because they had it pretty good with Rome. They were upper class. They had their money. They had their position in society. They had their high priests, and they didn't want to agitate Rome. They enjoyed the privileged position that they had under Rome's authority. But this tells us that their hatred for Jesus is so violent and so deep that they're even willing to champion the release and suggest the release to Pilate of a political prisoner who would potentially rebel against Rome. And they're willing to do that just because they want to see Jesus put to death. And so that's what's happening on a, a political level and on a trial level here. But let's think about this a little bit deeper on a theological level and consider what's happening here and what this tells us about the death of Christ. The guilty has gone free here while the innocent has been condemned and suffers punishment. Now, of course, I have no knowledge, and I don't think you do either, of what eventually happens to this guy this robber or insurrectionist. I don't know if the death of Jesus impacted him in any way. I don't know if he eventually turned from his sinful ways and came to Christ, and if maybe one day in heaven, by God's grace, you're going to bump into him. Oh, nice to meet you. Who are you? Barabbas. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> I've got some questions for you, right? Like, that would be cool. So I don't know. I don't know what impact this had on him. But this is exactly the sketch of Jesus that we need to see here, right? This is what happens. The guilty goes free and is acquitted on all charges because the innocent is condemned to suffer in the place of the guilty. I'd like to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. After I read this, or as I'm reading it, I want you to Pay attention and notice a couple of things here. Reconciliation with God, how does that happen? All right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled, brought us back together, us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. 
and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How are you reconciled to God? What is the message that we take out and proclaim that tells people, listen, this is even a possibility for you. You are guilty. You are Barabbas. You have sinned. You have been found wanting and found guilty. Your heart is dark before God and you are in rebellion against him. How is it possible to proclaim a message that says you can be reconciled to God for our sake? He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The goal of all of this is reconciliation with God. How does this happen? It's not by your works. It's not by your goodness or your effort or your ability. It's not because you've checked all the boxes and done really well. It happens through Christ, who this, through this one who we're reading about in John chapter 18. How does Christ bring this reconciliation about? Verse 21 gives us that theological reason. It is for our sake. What an amazing line, right? For your sake. God had you in mind. Jesus had you in mind. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, when he was on trial and being accused for something he didn't do, he had you and your guilt and your sin in mind there. It was for our sake that Jesus was treated as guilty, even though he wasn't guilty, so that we could receive and know the righteousness of God, so that God could view you as now righteous, which you and I most certainly are not. We're not born righteous into this world, but now we get treated as righteous. We are viewed as righteous by God. That whole reality is a worthy consideration for you and I this coming week. This is one of the basics of our faith, but I want to remind you of it again, that you had an innocent person suffer for you so that you as a guilty person could be innocent and be proclaimed as innocent and seen as innocent and go free and walk into newness of light. All of your wrongs have been forgiven. All of your guilt has been expunged and taken away. And it doesn't stand over you anymore in a way that condemns you. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what's happened when the innocent suffers for the guilty. So, all of this together. The trial of Jesus for you opens up the realities of his ministry for us, doesn't it? It puts them on display. It sketches out the work that he has done for our salvation. He's the Passover lamb. He's the sovereign king who comes to rule and reign. And he's the innocent no guilt is found in him who suffers in the place of the guilty so that the guilty can go free. And each of those sketches is a fundamental part of Christ's work for us on the cross. And I hope that we can walk out into this week rejoicing in those realities, thinking about those realities, resting in them. All of this has been done for us. 
and that they can strengthen and encourage you as you head out into the week this week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're thankful for the work that you've done for us. Help us to never grow tired of remembering what we've talked about this morning, these basic truths in the gospel. May these things feed our souls today. May we worship you because of them. In Christ's name we pray, amen.